Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. My name is Kerry Jester, for those of you who don't know me, and I serve as one of the deacons here at the Mountain Church. And some of you may know this is my first sermon here. So as you can imagine, I've got a little nerves right now. I am hopefully going to settle in a groove here shortly. <clears throat> I'm also dealing with a head cold, so uh, it's not the usual beautiful voice that you guys are used to. It might sound a little nasally, so bear with me as we work through this. And although it is my first sermon here at the Mountain Church, it is not my first sermon. There should be a picture up on the screens. Uh, this was in uh, Wusakili Baptist Church in Kitwe, Zambia. And this was April of 2012, and this was my first sermon. And I don't want to brag, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I think I did such a great job on this Sunday morning that it's only taken 10 years to be asked to preach again. <laughs> the man beside me up there is Pastor Chanda, or Ba Chanda, as he was affectionately called. And uh, he was the head over the orphanage and uh, pastored two churches. So Daniel, pick it up. Um, he was my translator on that day, so if I have long or awkward pauses, just know old habits are hard to break. And I, I'm not actually sure of this, but I've always had a sneaky suspicion that he had his own sermon going on that day and just timed it up with my pauses. <laughs> At least for his congregation's sake, I certainly hope so. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12 that the lovely and talented Mrs. Jester just read to us. And as you turn there, I have a question for you. Who enjoys a good story? I'm talking about one that has character development, one that has twists, turns, a big reveal, maybe even a little hidden meaning, maybe even a little uh, symbolism in there. Who likes a good story like that? Well, you're in luck because that's what we have today. All right, starting off there in verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh, we might recall we were first introduced, introduced to Nathan in um, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Uh, God had sent Nathan to deliver a message to David there. We call it the Davidic covenant. It's where God gave his promises to David and that the lineage of the Messiah would come through him. Nathan was a prophet. He was a messenger of God, which means he was probably a pretty good communicator. I would imagine God blessed him with that gift. And we know any good communicator probably has a lot of different ways to deliver a message. I like to think that he might have had a communicator utility belt and that he had a lot of tools on that belt to use. And we're about to see here that he's going to use um, a parable to deliver a story off that belt. And we might think, why would he use a parable in this instance? Well, keep in mind who he's talking to here. He's talking to the king that had just committed all the wickedness we heard last week in chapter 11 that Daniel preached on, how he had had uh, lusted after a woman, committed adultery, schemed, lied, eventually he just had that man murdered when his plan didn't work out. So it would take a brave man to go to that king and to bring to light all the stuff that had happened that the king thought was being hidden. And there's another reason, too, why I think he might have used a parable, and I'll get into that later. But we pick back up there in verse 1. There were, um, he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. So the settings being set, we got a rich man, a poor man, something we can all relate to. Chapter, uh, verse 2, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Aw, isn't that sweet? 
We see here that the poor man is a giver. He gave of his food. He gave of his drink. He gave of his affection. I think the poor man's going to be our protagonist here that we're going to be cheering for, right? Um, also, before we move on, I want you to look back at last week's uh, passage, chapter 11, verse 11. This is Uriah's words to David. Uh, when he was explaining to David his actions, it was kind of foiling David's plans. He said, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And what was the words that uh, Nathan just used here? He said it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was the exact same words that Uriah had said to David. Should have been a deja vu for him, but I think David's getting enthralled in the story and doesn't realize it. But that Nathan, he's a, he's a talented uh, messenger here. Continuing on in verse 4, it says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or her to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took, I'm going to come back to that word in a minute, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for and prepared it for the man who would come to him. So we saw the poor man was described as a giver. We see here that the rich man is described as a taker. I'm thinking the rich man's going to be our antagonist, the guy we boo and hiss at here in a little bit. Um, that word took, if you look back also in last week's passage to verse 4, it said, so David sent messengers and took her. It's the exact same word used there as here. And that word in the Hebrew almost implies uh, stole, that he stole. So again, Nathan's a talented communicator. We're about to see here in verse 5, David's anger. We're going to see he's a very passionate guy, very emotional guy, and he's about to lose his cool. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So I'm telling you, David's irate here. David's seeing red. He's mad. And he says, as the Lord lives. If you remember in last week's message, Daniel pointed out that the Lord's name was not mentioned in all of chapter 11, except for the very last verse to point out that the Lord was not pleased with what was going on. And here you have a man living as if there was no God with his recent actions, and almost acting as if he was God, deciding who lives and dies, but yet here he invokes the, name, the Lord's name. And I just thought that was very bold, very rich. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The only problem with that is, is that's not what the law required. And David would have known that as king. He would have acted as judge and would have resided over a lot of cases like this. But I think he's just so mad and so angry, he just kind of says stuff that doesn't even make sense. Because then next comes exactly what the law did require. He said, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. So I think David kind of came to his senses and realized, okay, maybe not death, but this is what was required of the law because he had done this thing. And now we're about to up here to uh, verse 7. This is going to be the big reveal. This is where Nathan's going to let us know who this story is truly about. So if you're a Scooby-Doo fan, this is where the mask is about to be taken off and revealed of our villain, and we find out who it is. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Boom. In Hebrew, that's two words. You are the man. It is short. It is concise. It is to the point, and it would have cut directly to David. So the mask was removed. The villain is David. He was the rich man in this story. 
And continuing on, he says, Thus says the Lord of God, the, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And as I read this, I enjoy putting the emphasis on you, but that's carry jester added, not in the scriptures. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So we see here, no surprise to us, that God is a giver also. We see that he gave um, David, he gave him position. He was king. He gave him protection from Saul, who was trying to take his life. And we also see that he gave him possessions. He gave him his master's house, and he gave him the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So we see what the Lord thinks about all this. And he says, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more. And this next verse, verse 9, to me, this is what this whole chapter, and even you could say chapter 11, it all revolves around it, all boils down to the one thing that he did wrong is here in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? To me, that is the one thing that David did wrong. And you may be saying, well, Carrie, hold on a second. What about the um, lust that led to adultery? What about the lying, the scheming? What about the uh, eventual murder? Well, thank you for asking all those things. Aren't all those things listed in God's word? If we turn to the Ten Commandments, aren't all those things discussed right there in that very, that very section? So what David did wrong was he despised the word of the Lord, and what that looked like or the actions was all those things that we just discussed. And the thing is, David knew better. He knew God's word. We see in other Psalms how important God's word was to him and and what it meant to him. So he knew better, but yet he still disobeyed. Continuing on, Nathan's now going to describe the actual details of the case and what some of the consequences are. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives on the side of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." So we see that this is going to be some of the consequences to David's actions. And I'm not going to talk much about this because this is all going to come to fruition in the next couple chapters. So I'll leave that to Daniel to cover. And if Daniel doesn't cover it, call him out. Say, Carrie said you're going to cover this, so hold him accountable. <laughs> and we come to verse 13 here. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, as we discussed earlier, that David thought that the rich man deserved death in that story, but it wasn't deserved. Do you know what David deserved in this story? It was actually death. That was, that was what was called for with, with, with what happened. But God says, I have put away your sin. You shall not die. What a good and gracious God we serve. This reminds me of a quote by Warren Wearsby. He says, in his mercy, God doesn't give us what we do deserve. 
And in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. I'm going to read that one more time because it's kind of confusing. In his mercy, God does not give us what we do deserve. And in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. And I'm going to look over here in Psalms 32. I don't have it up on the screen. So if you want to turn with me, if you have your Bible, and if not, you can just listen. But this psalm was written at the same time as what this is going on. And I think it lets you know a little bit of David's heart and just how heavy this was upon him. I'm just going to look at the first five chapters, and we're actually going to start in verse 3. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So although at this point... As David was discussing here, uh, the sin was not known, but it sure looks like the guilt of it was heavy on his heart, and it was heavy on his mind. Picking back up there in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Picking back up in verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I think we can see there just how important God's grace and mercy is, and we see it in David's life, of just what it meant to him. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Then again there in verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So Nathan, the messenger, his job's done. He had a message delivered. He did it quite well, and he's able to go home. And in God's grace and mercy, and not only forgiving Nathan of this sin, it's God's grace and mercy that sent Nathan to him in the first place to allow that sin not to be covered, but to be brought to light, to allow his servant to ask for forgiveness, and for God's grace and mercy to be shown through David because of that. And I think that's important. And we're now about to go into a section where I said earlier that some of the consequences of David's actions are going to be covered by Daniel in future chapters. Uh, There's one consequence that we're about to see now. And although the sin was forgiven, the consequences of of the sin remain. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg on this, and he had a really great analogy talking about the sin is forgiven, but the consequences remain. And he said, imagine a still body of water, and you have a stone, and you throw it into the water. You can reach in there and take that stone out. That's the sin being removed. But the ripples are going to continue on because that is the consequences of the sin still being there. Another uh, commentator had said, likened it to a surgery, that if you have something sick inside you that's, or disease being removed, the sin is taken away, but yet there's still a scar that's going to remain as a reminder of that sin. And I thought that was a, a great analogy to see here. And um, this next section here is a very difficult section to preach through. It can be something that can make us very uncomfortable. And what I appreciate here at the Mountain Church is we don't skip over sections like this. We preach through all of Scripture. And I appreciate Daniel's heart in doing that. It would be easier to treat the Bible like a buffet and to take the things we like and to preach on that, the things that make us feel good, and the things that we don't like, the things that might make us uncomfortable. That's okay. I'll just leave that there. But no, 
we like to look at all of Scripture here. So I think one thing we can ask ourselves, and as we approach a section that talks about the Lord afflicting a child, how, how might we approach this? How might we come to it? And I think one way is to look at all of Scripture and to see who God is in all of Scripture and to see his goodness and his grace and his mercy, to see that he is a just God, he's a loving God. I think, secondly, it's good to look at passages like in Job, where Job questions God about why he's doing what it is that he's doing. And what is God's response to Job? Where were you when? Fill in the blank. It's a very long passage, and it goes through from creating the heavens and the earth and hanging the stars to something as small as caring for the animals and even the lilies in the field. It's a good reminder that God's ways is not our ways, and we need to trust in that and remember that. One commentator I thought put it very well. He says, I do not have comfortable answers to the questions and objections that we all want to raise, nor do I want to silence them. However, I do want to say that we should be slow to pass self-righteous judgments on God's ways. We do not necessarily understand what God does, but the one who knows all things is righteous in all his ways. This reality is greater and more reliable than our discomfort. Excuse me a minute. So picking back up in verse 15, it says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child. And I want to stop there and point out that just like Daniel pointed out in all of Levin, God's name was not mentioned once. I think this shows that it wasn't just lip service and David confessing his sin to the Lord. And here the first opportunity where I'm sure the guilt of this of what's happening to the child is weighing heavy on him. What does he do? He takes it to the Lord. It says, And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And it continues to describe that to the elders, he was acting very odd, doing things that usually happened after uh, a death had happened, not before. They were uh, concerned that once he found out that the child did die, that he might do worse things to him and harm himself. We'll pick up there right before verse 20. He says, is a child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Again, a second time we see here, he goes to the Lord. And I think this is a great example for us. David is here. That is, we have whatever the troubles or the trials that's going on in our life, and for whatever reason, a sickness or um, some kind of diagnosis for the doctor is what keeps coming to mind. And whether it's for you or it's for a loved one, maybe that diagnosis is, is, is bleak, that we still take it to the Lord, and we pray just as David did here. And David was already told that the child was going to die. But David prayed with all assurance that that same grace that God showed him would be shown to this child also. And he prayed to the Lord on behalf of the child, the Lord, and just as, as, as we should as well, pray with all assurance for what we're asking for and that the Lord will hear our prayers. And the Lord does hear our prayers. It doesn't mean it's the answer that we want, but it is the answer that is appropriate. And just like David here, he doesn't pout. He doesn't get upset. He goes to the Lord and he worships. And I think that's a great example for us, that if we don't get the answer that we want, we know that God's goodness and God's grace is what's always going to take place, and that's what's best for us. 
I'm also reminded in the New Testament before Christ, our Lord and Savior, went to the cross. What did he pray? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Again, I think it's the same example of we can take whatever it is to the Lord, but we know that it's Lord's will is what's going to be done. And then the passage uh, continues on there, and it talks about the servants asking him why was he acting this way. Then there in verse 22, he says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Kind of backing up what I was saying there. And then describing that uh, the child is dead, what now can I do? So as we wrap up that, that, that section and speaking about the Lord's will, there's a great analogy I heard one time of how sometimes it makes sense to us what happens and sometimes it doesn't. And it's as if we're looking at a jigsaw puzzle, but we're looking at it from underneath. So all we see is just a cardboard back. And we see holes and we see pieces fit together and, oh, that makes sense to us. That's why that happened. That filled in right there. And at other times, things happen, and maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's, it's, it's just odd to us. But it's good to remember that we're seeing the cardboard side, whereas God is up above seeing the beautiful picture that he's putting together. And I thought that's a great analogy. And there's one more thing here I'd like to read before we leave this passage. This is from Warren Wearsby also. He says, There are no easy answers to settle our minds, but there are plenty of dependable promises to heal our hearts. And faith is nurtured on promises, not explanations. So now we pick back up in verse 24, and we see God the giver again. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. I want to point out, Daniel mentioned last week, I think verse 3 was the last time she was mentioned by name. After that, it was just the wife of Uriah. Uh, We see here she's mentioned by name again as David's wife. And he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. For those of you that have had the joy of welcoming a newborn baby into the world, you know what a great and gracious gift this is, the gift of new life. And this doesn't take away the hurt or the loss from the last child, but it's God as a giver, giving when he doesn't have to. And it says, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. Oh, who do we see here? Our old buddy Nathan again. So he was chilling at home watching CSI Jerusalem or whatever it is prophets did in that days when they weren't at work. And he gets a call, and God says, I got another message for you. He says, okay, what is it? He said, Jedediah. Jedediah, that's it. I don't even need my communicator utility belt for this one. I can leave it at home. So we see that uh, and he sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. And if you have a subscript like I do that says Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. And as I read that, I thought, that's interesting. I've heard Solomon speak to, uh, spoken of a lot, but I've never heard him referred to as Jedediah. And one commentator said that, <clears throat> that Jedediah was not to supplant the name Solomon, which comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, but it was to supplement it, that, the God, that God blessing was on this child. And we see that through him that the Davidic covenant continues, and it's through his lineage that the Messiah comes. And then we continue on with this last passage, and I'm just going to summarize it some. We see that uh, Joab is out in battle, and it was customary for whoever uh, 
was the one to completely conquer the city or, or the, the fight, he would get credit for it. And being a, a good warrior, the old adage, too many chiefs, not enough warriors, he was being a good warrior. He knew his king should get credit, so he called him up and said, hey, bring the boys down. We're about to take the city. Uh, if you want credit, you better get here. And I do want to point out in verse 30, it says, and he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and, it was in, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. Uh, in my studies, it said a talent of gold was about 75 pounds. So David had some serious neck muscles, or this was more symbolic, saying that he was now the ruler over this area as well. And it continues to talk about how um, the Lord gave them victory, a lot of spoil, and the people there were put to work under David's kingdom. And that's the end of chapter 12. So for the rest of the time this morning, uh, and we're going until 2 o'clock, Daniel said that the work party is shortly thereafter. Um, The rest of the time this morning, I would like to look at maybe a couple of takeaways that we can take from this passage. And the first one, I would like to stay here in this this last uh, little uh, paragraph talking about the battle that was going on. But I want you to turn back with me to the first verse of chapter 11. And I feel like this story is bookend by this first verse and this last story. And it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And then we see here at the end, David ends up being where he should have been all along, back out on the battlefield. And while Daniel pointed out last week, and I definitely don't want to contradict this, that our circumstances, if you change our circumstance, it doesn't necessarily change our heart that's turned away from God. And I completely agree with that. But I think there's a reason why these two chapters are bookend by saying that this is where David should have been, and ends up, this is where David was. I think it's showing us that David should have been doing something that he wasn't. And out of that came trouble. And while I don't really think I found it in Scripture, but the old adage that idle hands are the devil's playground, I found it to be true in my own life, and you guys may have as well. And I think that we see that here in David's case. So how does that relate to us? Okay, Um, I'm not a king. I'm a jester. Uh, In the springtime, I'm not out on the battlefield against uh, my enemies. I'm not out against SeaTac or against uh, Burien or against Federal Way or whoever the enemies of Des Moines are, um, like David is here. In the springtime, hopefully, I'm on the side of a thawing mountain on a beautiful hiking trail taking in God's, God's beauty. Or I'm pouring through the box scores of my favorite baseball team because it's Hope Springs Eternal and they might just have a chance this year. So how does that relate to me? David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. What are the things that I'm supposed to be doing or we're supposed to be doing? I think the spiritual disciplines is a good place to start. I think being in our word daily is a good place to start. When we are in our word daily, um, it's going to help us stay away from despising the word of the Lord, as it says in verse 9. Hopefully the Lord's word will be on our hearts, and uh, we're going to know what that is. And I think also when we come to passages that are more difficult, we're going to have a greater understanding of who God is and what his character is. So I think that's one one thing we should be doing. I think another one is prayer, going to the Father and taking the things that are heavy on our hearts to him, but also thanking him for the goodness and the great gifts that he's given us and for the grace and the mercy that he's shown to us. 
So I think that's another one. Other spiritual disciplines like giving and the Lord's Supper, I think, are important. As I was studying for this, one kept coming to mind, and that was community. And it's debatable, I know, if that's a spiritual discipline or not. But as I was studying for this, a great story uh, was told. And this was a week ago Saturday at the men's breakfast. One of my brothers there <clears throat> excuse me, described how he had not been in God's Word lately. And I don't remember the, the details. It, it seemed like it had been at least a couple months. And he had been straying in areas that maybe he shouldn't have been. And this is a brother that I respect. I consider him spiritually mature, mature enough to know the dangers in doing this. And he said he had shared it with uh, Thomas at family camp. And Thomas had encouraged him in being in God's word, the importance of it. And knowing Thomas, I assume he prayed with him right there. And then the next week at church, Thomas came up to him and the usual casualties, how's it going? And eventually got to, were you in God's word this week? And the brother said he felt exposed, he felt called out because he hadn't been. And that he, he, he knew that, that, that uh, he should have been. And Thomas, again, encouraged him in it and, and prayed with him. And that brother shared that uh, during that next week, he was in God's word, not only because he knew that he should have been, but because he knew he had a brother that was going to hold him responsible. Sorry about that. God's grace and mercy is so good, and I don't ever want to. I'm never ashamed for the tears that come. I'm just not a graceful crier, so bear with me. <laughs> but I love how God uses community and uses brothers to call out one another and, and to call them back to each other. So that's why I do think community is so important. It's important for us to be reaching out to those around us to say, hey, how can I be praying for you? Or to say, hey, you haven't been acting like yourself lately. Is everything all right? Or to say, hey, I really appreciate how you use your gifts in church to lead us in worship or uh, to teach the kids or, or, or whatever it is. And I think community is so, so very important for that. So I think that's one way we can look at this, at this, at this passage, the kind of bookends of David not doing what he should have been doing and what are the things that we should, should be doing. It's a great reminder for that. And last, I, I want to kind of look at the, the story of, of Nathan and David and Nathan coming to, 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 to David and bringing the sin about. And uh, I want you to humor me here. We're going to do a little thought exercise. I want you to think of the last sin that you had last week. Whatever that sin is, just think about it in your head. Micah, don't blurt out what your sin was. Sydney, don't blurt out Micah's sin either. <laughs> but just think about whatever that sin is in your head, whether you didn't respond to your wife in the correct way in love. Um, maybe it was with your kids. You lost your patience and you didn't discipline in love. Or maybe they needed to be disciplined and discipline is love and you withheld it from them. Or maybe it has nothing to do with a family environment. Maybe it has to do with work. Maybe it has to do with gossip. Maybe it has to do with pride, jealousy, whatever it is. Just think about that sin in your head. And I want you to imagine someone coming to you and explaining that sin in such a way about somebody else that it just enrages you, just like David did here. And it gets you so worked up, and it shows you how serious that sin is. It's unfortunate, but we do see our sins most clearly in other people. And it's not unusual for us to be enraged by the sins of others while our own hearts are hardened and unrepentant in relationship to our own sinful ways. So that message that Nathan gave to David, it's for us too. 
And you might say, well, Carrie, I'm not a murderer, or I didn't um, sleep with my neighbor's wife, or at least I hope that wasn't your sin you had in your head. But just like those things, the sin that is in your head, isn't it also discussed in God's Word? And it's despising the Word of the, of the Lord is what that boils down to. And just like David, most of us, I think, know the Word well enough to know that we shouldn't be committing whatever those sins are, but yet we do it anyways. So going back and thinking to that last sin, you are the man. Micah, you are the man. You are the man, Peter. Ben, you are the man. Chris, you are the man. You are the man, Rick. Stephanie, women, you are the man also. It might sound funny, but you are the man. And that's for me too. It's hard, believe me. Uh, Being confronted with your own sin, I get it. But the message is for us too, that you are the man. And our response should be the same as David. I have sinned against the Lord. And I have to hand it to David. David didn't waffle. He didn't backpedal. He didn't make excuses. He didn't try to share the blame. He took the responsibility full on himself, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you know what I do whenever I'm confronted with my sin? All those things I just mentioned. I'm backpedaling. I'm making excuses. I'm sharing the blame. Lord, the only reason I said what I said to Stephanie was because of what she said to me first. So, you know, if she wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't. You know what? Let me just bring her up here. You can rebuke us both at the same time. Um, You can thank me for it later. later. It'll save you time. Or, you know, Lord, if you didn't want me to explode in anger the way that I did, why did you make me this way? You know I have a short fuse. Or, Lord, you know I don't have a filter, and sometimes people need to know what I'm thinking about them. And, Lord, if you don't want that to happen, then don't have these people that need to know what I'm thinking about them around me all the time. That's just the way you made me. Or even, you know, Lord, I don't always respond in the right way at first, but after that I calm down and I have a calm head and I may not go back and ask for forgiveness. But no, David said, it is against the Lord I have sinned. And I appreciate that about David. He was very honest about it. And while death for the rich man was not justifiable, death for us is justifiable. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that means we're all in the same boat here in this room. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So that means for that sin that you have in your head, the wage for that sin is death. Whether that's a physical death or a spiritual death, I think the spiritual death is far worse. But fortunately for us, that verse continues. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God in his mercy does not give us what we do deserve, but God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve. And what a beautiful gift that is. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a, good, what a good Lord we serve. What a loving God we serve. What a great gift giver we serve. God sent his son on this earth to live the life that I couldn't live. To die the death I should have died. And to conquer sin and death 
so that I can stand before the Father and he can say, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. So going back and thinking about that last sin in, in your mind, if you're a believer and you've confessed that sin, Micah, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. Peter, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. Ben, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. Rick, you too, brother, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. Stephanie, your sins are forgiven, you shall not die. And that's for me as well. And that's why I get choked up at times, because I don't deserve it. There's nothing of me that required it. But as a free gift of God, what a good and gracious God we serve. What a great gift-giving God we serve. And it's out of that heart, that heart of thankfulness, that we're thankful to God for, those spiritual disciplines I was talking about, it's out of that heart that we want to pour back into God's Word and to know Him better and to know what it says. It's out of that heart that we pray to Him and we ask Him to forgive us of the sinners that we are and we're thankful for the gift that He's given us. It's out of that heart that we reach out to our brothers and sisters because we want them to share in that same beauty and that same love And it's out of that same heart that we reach out to the unbelievers around us and to try to share that with them as well. So if you are a believer here this morning, I would like for you to take away from this just that that whole passage there about the gravity of your sin, how important it is, and that you confess it to the Lord. And there may be consequences for that sin, but that's for our good and for God's glory. And that God has forgiven us of that sin. We don't beat ourselves up for it. We just move on. And we try not to make the same mistakes again because we rest in the Lord. And I'd like for you to rest in that as well as you go about your week. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're not a believer or this is new to you or you might not be even sure what I'm talking about here, I would love to talk with you more about this after the service. I know Daniel, Pastor Daniel would love to talk to you about it more after the service. And really, for that matter, grab somebody around you and ask them what Christ has done in their life, because I'm sure they would love to tell you what Christ has done for them as well. Father, we thank you for this time to come here this morning. We thank you for the fullness of your word. We thank you for how it instructs us and how it teaches us and how it leads us and how it guides us and how it calls us back to you. We thank you for how you reveal to us your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And you show it in your servant David, and you show it in our lives time and time again. And Lord, I pray for those this morning that may may not know you in this way, that you're working in their hearts, and you're tilling their hearts, and these seeds are planted, that they might come to you. And Lord, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, that you've given us your son Christ, so that we can come before you and you can say, your sins are forgiven. You will not die. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.